Hi, everyone, and thanks for giving us your time today. I'm Ian Hamilton, and in case you're new here, I'm recording this from our studio in virtual reality. And I'm joined by my co-host, David Heaney. We come together each week to talk about the latest developments shaping the next generation of personal computing. What do we have this week? So this week, we're going to talk mostly about the research prototypes that Meta showed off that cover their goal of reaching VR indistinguishable from reality from a visual perspective. But we're also going to talk firstly about the patent filing that was made public from Valve that may reveal the design of their next headset. Why don't you dive into that one right off the top here? Because there's been a lot of rumors around this headset for a long time. And uh, sadly, it's Bradley has been in our comments in the past. He's uh, constantly putting out videos talking about some of the things that Valve is working on. What are we able to discern from this particular patent filing? So this is a design patent filing, which is different from a utility patent. So this is not talking about how this headset works, although there are some hints in the design and the text from the design about how it works, but it's actually related to the strap design. And that's why you notice that at the front of the headset, there are no kind of cameras or specific details. And even in the other images that look at the front, that you know, there are not even any shaping of the lenses or anything like that. So we don't get an idea about the core specs, but what we do see here is a headset that seems to retain the same near off ear speakers as the valve index and has some sort of compute module at the back that may house either the battery or the computing hardware or both. And the reason we think that Valve is coming out with the next headset is, as you mentioned, Brad Lynch, sadly it's Bradley, back in September, found references to a headset called Deckard in the SteamVR driver files. And so there are also some hints from Valve that suggest that they are working on a standalone headset. When asked directly by The Verge last year whether Steam Deck's chip could be used in a standalone headset, Valve's product designer, Greg Coomer, said it could run very well in that environment and it's very relevant to us and our future plans. In February of this year, Gabe Newell, Valve's president, described Steam Deck as a stepping stone to high-performance standalone VR, although it's important to note that in that same interview he also noted, but we're not really there yet. So back when Lynch found those files in September, there was a lot of evidence that that is a standalone system. There is a standalone system layer uh, hidden in the Valve internal menu, as well as Linux-only binaries referencing Deckard, which tell the device to boot up to a default application. So in the same way that Steam Deck runs SteamOS, it seems very likely that this headset runs SteamOS. We should also note that Ars Technica, the news outlet, confirmed at the time of Lynch's reporting that their sources confirmed that Valve was working on some sort of headset, though they noted that at the time it was unlikely to go into production given the focus on Steam Deck. Finally, Lynch had noted that there was a driver called VR Link added to Steam VR, which seems to allow the headset to communicate wirelessly with a PC. So in the same way that Quest 2 has AirLink or virtual desktop, it looks like this headset will also be able to stream from a PC. Where is Valve right now? They've got a lot to contend with. There's the component shortage that's affecting production worldwide. Every device, every company is dealing with this production shortage. And they're in the middle of trying to ship the Steam Deck and catch up on those pre-orders. Are they going to be able to do this anytime soon? 
There's still at the point where if you order a Steam Deck, it's four or five months out until you'll actually receive it. I think there is a conceivable world where Valve had decided to prioritize the headset first, and it's already on the market instead of Steam Deck. But obviously, they saw this handheld as a more lucrative short-term approach. There's also potential evidence that we talked about from Display Week that they're looking to try and make Deckard have micro OLED displays, which would require waiting a little bit longer anyway for those to be available for commercial products. It's really hard to tell how close Deckard is. I think if you look at Gabe's comment from February that, but we're not quite there yet, to me, that doesn't scream a product that's coming out this year. If I really had to guess, given the component shortage, given the timing, I'd say perhaps Valve will wait for Index to get to four years old. Right now it's three years old and it's already been overtaken on both the low end by Quest 2 and on the high end by the likes of Vive Pro 2 and Vario Aero. So I do think they really are in need to ship a product, but if I had to guess, it would be next year, not this year. It's kind of nuts how Valve only has a couple hardware products to speak of, but because of the power of their storefront and their brand, those products will probably make the top sellers month in, month out for years to come as is the case with the the index headset right i mean it's it is an aging headset yet it's still uh often in those top sellers isn't it yeah but it's important to note that top sellers on steam is by revenue so if you're talking about a thousand dollar product then it need it only needs to sell 50 times less than a 20 dollar game to beat it in the top sellers list so it's unclear how, just how well the headset's doing based on that. It is the only expensive hardware sold directly through Steam, but it still is doing well in the Steam hardware survey. It's still the second most popular headset. It's just that in the past year, it really hasn't seen anything like the growth of Quest 2. There's definitely no massive sales surge of Index right now. Well, this next subject is very, very interesting. This was an unprecedented look into some of the VR headset prototypes in development over there at Meta. Heaney and I have been following these headset prototypes pretty closely over the years, and they've shown a very clear progression of concepts towards some of the things that we're seeing this week. Which one do you want to start off with getting into today? There were quite a few prototypes shown here, and this is obviously the entire wall of history that they've shown where we see things that have been presented in papers and at different conferences throughout the years. This is the Butterscotch prototype, and it addresses resolution specifically. This device reaches just under retinal resolution, and retinal resolution is a term that simply means a resolution beyond the point that the human eye can discern. That is generally accepted to be around 60 pixels per degree. The Quest 2 that I'm wearing right now achieves around 20 pixels per degree. And the market leader in consumer headsets, the Vario Aero, reaches 35 pixels per degree for around $2,000. Vario's high-end headsets, their enterprise headsets that they sell to businesses for around $5,000, in fact, north of $5,000, actually already achieve human eye resolution, but only in a very small area in the center of the lens. Butterscotch achieves 55 pixels per degree, just under that 60, but it has a field of view only half of that of Quest 2, so that's the big trade-off. It's also 
heavy and bulky by Meta's own admission. And that's one of the key things we need to say about the prototypes shown today. None of these are supposed to be future products. These are not looks at future products. The idea of these headsets, such as Butterscotch, is to demonstrate what is the effect of maxing out one of these elements of VR headset visual system design. And then from that, they can adjust the resolution in the headset and say, okay, where do we need to hit in our future products? And how long is it that we need to prioritize this? This is very much so research. And to be clear, you look through this and you have 2020 vision, right? Yep. So that's the, that's what you get by getting up to 55 pixels per degree. You get 2020 vision. Obviously at a very limited um, field of view, the question is sort of like, how quickly do they start marching from between here and here? How quickly does that gap get passed through? I, I don't know. You know, uh, one of the questions, so I got the opportunity during this briefing with Meta and uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Landman, uh, Douglas Landman, the head of displays research over there, to put a question to Meta. Um, so I, I asked this question, and I kind of expected the answer to be what it was. And the question was, are you going to put eye tracking into all future VR headsets, uh, headset products? And Mark Zuckerberg basically answered that question and said, we're not going to talk about future products right now. But both Landman and Zuckerberg made it clear that at least from research perspective, they're going to put eye tracking into most future research products. So it seems pretty clear that eye tracking is a fundamental part of, if not all VR headsets from Meta in the future, the vast majority of them going forward. And it's going to be necessary for you to get this jump in resolution, isn't it, Heaney? Yeah, because with Butterscotch, they're doing it through brute force. It's just a very high resolution display that's attached to lenses with half of the field of view. But if you want to achieve that practically in something that isn't kind of big and bulky and heavy, at the very least from a rendering side, you need foveated rendering where you only render in where you're looking at at full resolution because the human eye can only see in the very center in full resolution and everything else at a lower resolution. But even from a hardware perspective, one of the kind of ideal goals of VR and something we haven't seen actually delivered yet, but we've heard Vario talk about, and Meta has put this into some of their patent filings, is a foveated display where you actually can steer a higher resolution inlet display into the eye where it's looking. So obviously Vario has a kind of fixed version of this where you have a, a low resolution or normal resolution periphery display over the entire lens and a tiny little high resolution foveal display. The ideal VR headset would have a steerable foveal display so that as you look around, that high resolution display is being used. That will obviously require not just eye tracking, but near perfect eye tracking. And that's one of the problems with building a headset around this, because if it feels for someone, if their eyes aren't the right kind of configuration for this, if they're just outside that 95 to 98% that these eye tracking systems try to cover, then that headset's going to look awful for them. And it's just not, they're going to notice the display move as it moves around. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this progresses in future. And I think it's actually, it's fascinating that they didn't talk about foveated rendering today. They referenced it, but we didn't see any pro prototypes of headsets that used foveated rendering or foveated displays. And I wonder if that's because they are noting this as kind of maxing out research and they're talking about these 
headsets today as arriving in the second half of the decade. I wonder if we're going to see foveated rendering arrive in one of the headsets in a much shorter term. And that's why Meta doesn't want to talk about it in its research talk. Mm, and of course, we know that Cambria has eye tracking inside of it. So it's theoretically possible if they're able to get the software stack uh, there to match it, that there could be some gains that they might be able to pull out with foveated rendering on that device. Given that PlayStation VR 2 has confirmed it, I would be very surprised if we don't see any kind of dynamic foveated rendering on Cambria. And it is notable that they haven't talked about it at all yet. Yeah. All right. Well, Starburst is their high dynamic range prototype headset. This is a monster that you hold like a, like you hold it up on either side and then hold this thing up to your face. And then I was looking, I, I think I saw Norm from Tested got to look through this one and it was mounted on a, uh, like a, a thing he could actually move around like the old, very old headsets that were too heavy to ever be head mounted. Um, and, Heaney, why don't you walk us through the specs of this thing and just how bright and how much contrast is actually in there compared to what we have today? So luminance is measured in nits, as you've probably heard, if you ever look at the specs for a television or even a smartphone these days from some of the analysts. If you have a high-end HDR TV, you, you, know, you properly spend a lot of money, thousands of dollars for a great HDR TV it will reach around a thousand nits and that, that's the same for a monitor and for something like an iPhone Pro. It can, in HDR mode, output around 1000 nits. If you go outdoors in real life, the brightness will dwarf any of this. The ambient brightness on a clear summer day will be measured in the tens of thousands of nits. And if you are stupid enough to look directly at the sun, that's over 1 billion nits. And that's why you shouldn't do that. So... Let's talk about VR headsets. <laughs> yes, don't stare at the sun. Good advice. I loved it. Yeah, he, you wrote that in your story. I laughed when I was reading it. Yeah, don't stare at the sun. And I know there's like some person out there is like, what? I want to know what the difference is between a billion and 10,000. No, don't do it. Don't do it. No. Thankfully, we will never see headsets at that brightness for the obvious reason. So what can VR headsets do? Well, the Quest 2 today peaks out at around 100 nits. So that's really not very impressive at all when compared to HDR TV. So what does Starburst do? Obviously, Starburst is bulky and heavy and impractical. And it is, again, one of those prototypes that is only designed to, to look at the perceptual effect of maxing out something like this. It can reach 20,000 nits. So that can actually accurately depict a bright outdoor day, which no other 3D display has been able to do and certainly no other head mounted display that we've ever heard of it also of course has high dynamic range so it can adjust the variability of the brightness to a much larger degree than a standard dynamic range display like most we have today no vr headset yet has high dynamic range but the playstation vr 2 which according to some reports will launch next year although we don't know the reliability of those reports will have a HDR OLED display. And it's one of the things that I'm most excited about for PlayStation VR 2. But yeah, this is, from Norm's impressions, this was the most impressive demonstration of all. Zuckerberg actually said that achieving this brightness and high dynamic range was to him the most important aspect of reaching visually indistinguishable VR. And if you've ever tried a really good HDR TV, you'll understand why. There is just something so vibrant and real about looking at an image that bright compared to the dull monitors that we're all really used to. 
Yeah, and I, I don't know if I want to get into this now or wait until we get through the rest of the prototypes, but this visual Turing test that Meta aims to pass with some of these advances, right? They announced all of these prototypes as part of this effort to make a VR headset where when you look through it, you can't tell if the visuals are real or virtual. And watching that video with Norm going through some of these demos, some of his commentary and his hands-on sort of impressions of how his body was reacting to the visuals coming at him really pointed out and made clear how these advances will at least close the gap, uh, if not fully pass the visual Turing test yet. But what what just gets me, Heaney, is when we put these headsets on, field of view is obviously the thing that screams out at everyone, right? We feel like we're looking through a tunnel, and that's something that could instantly get better. But there's other things like variable focus, high dynamic range, and, of course, resolution there that all need to improve by leaps and bounds. And it's really hard to talk about this stuff because you and I feel like we're together in this same room. We feel presence together here, but that is fundamentally different from uh, so many of these things disappearing from your, your like mental load that you carry in your brain to remember that you're in a virtual space. Like I am just constantly reminded by everything I see in this headset that it's not real. Right. Heaney and, because we get such a great rich, you know, such a great sense of presence, we forgive it and accept it as real. But uh, it's really hard to fathom how beautiful and real everything is going to feel in these next gen headsets, right, Heaney? The current headsets that we have today can induce presence, which to be clear about what we mean by the word presence, it's the subconscious acceptance that the environment you're being presented with is real rather than virtual. They can induce it for a matter of seconds. You accidentally go to lean on a virtual table or someone throws something at your head and you instinctually duck as if it was a real object coming at your head. And these are things you do without even thinking. But the potential of VR when we get future display systems like this combined with future tracking and all of the other elements that make it up, including sound, is that we can get hardware that can deliver presence for sustained periods of time. So you potentially in 10 years can be in a virtual environment and you're, you consciously know that you're not in a real place, but your subconscious is completely convinced that what it's seeing is real to the point where it forms memories in the same sense you would form memories in reality and where you react to all of these things I'm talking about as if they were real and you constantly have to remind yourself from a physical perspective. That's the goal here. And there still is a general skepticism of the potential market size of VR from larger tech. There's still a, a skepticism about whether it can deliver an experience that hundreds of millions, if not billions of people want to use. But I would strongly bet that if they can get past this visual Turing test in the next decade or two, if they can deliver sustained presence, this is going to be a technology that everyone's going to be using. That was fantastic context to sort of add to this because Meta in this whole presentation of these headsets is owning the fact that the current Quest 2 fails in so many respects from providing you know, any suitable replacement for our current displays, right? And even though traditional displays have reached 
retinal resolution in certain respects, we're a very far way away from that. But this, the presentation of all this research makes it clear that Meta is very, very focused on passing that threshold, even though, to your point, Heaney, there is still massive amounts of skepticism that uh, it'll ever be achieved. There's just so many years here of a VR is ready, VR is ready, and people put on the headsets, and it's just, hey, is this still low resolution? This This still hurts my head after 15 minutes. But each of these designs, and one of the ones that I really... I'm really excited to talk about the Holocake ones as well as Mirror Lake because that uh, there's a significant advance there that I want to get into that doesn't seem really obvious. I agree, and I would honestly still argue that we're still in the first generation of VR. And a lot of people are skeptical of that idea, and they say, what are you talking about? You know, We're years in, there have been advances in products. But what I really see of having happened in the past six years is that the experience of PC VR in its first generation has been ported over to standalone. And yes, there has been a resolution advance that has happened because of the natural advancement in panels available. But from a fundamental experience perspective, other than that resolution bump, not much has really changed. You've got the tracking system moved from outside in to inside out. But again, that's just part of porting this whole thing to standalone, which is what's really been advanced. Now that standalone has been achieved and that this is a, a market, there's a, actual people buying millions of these headsets and developers can profitably make content for them. This is the part where VR can start to move off this off-the-shelf technology and into custom tech that is designed to actually make the experience better in all the fundamental ways. And that's what we're going to see happen over the next few years. What a fantastic breakdown. And it is going to be a slow process where they kind of put each of these pieces in one after another. And that's what that's why I want to get into this last one here, where we've got the thinnest and lightest design that Meta says it's ever... Yeah, standard refractive lenses are used in all the popular headsets today, including the Quest 2, the Valve Index... The PlayStation VR, yes, you get some variation in the exact type of refractive lens used. Some of them are standard aspheric lenses, like you'd see in the PlayStation VR or Vario Aero. Some of them are Fresnel lenses, like you see in the Valve Index and Quest 2. But all of these lenses have something in common, which is that they require a relatively large display and a relatively large distance between that display and the panel. And that is the primary driver of the bulk of the headsets that we have today, the huge optical path needed to make these headsets work. In recent years, we've seen a new type of lens come to market in products like the Vive Flow, although it's a niche product, pancake lenses. And they use polarization to achieve a folded optical path that is much shorter, which allows both smaller displays, some of which we talked about in our episode recently from Display Week, and a much shorter path between the lens and the display. And that's enabled headsets that are significantly more compact than what we're wearing today and than anything we've seen so far. And Meta is obviously using pancake lenses in the upcoming Project Cambria to achieve a much slimmer visor at the front than Quest 2, although obviously there's still bulk at the back to house the computing hardware. Once you get the pancake lenses, it's actually the lens itself that is contributing most of the thickness. The optical path is so short that it's not really the problem anymore. So Meta has developed a new type of lens that replaces the curved lens with what they call a holographic lens, a holographic film-based lens. 
And this means that you get a, a much narrower lens that is obvious, that still has the much shorter folded optical path. Now, Meta is using the term holographic here, not as in much of the rest of the industry would use it to mean like a 3D holographic display. They're just using it in the same sense that you would use the phrase holographic film. There is, however, a huge disadvantage to these hollow kick lenses in that they need to be driven by laser light, not by the standard kind of LED backlights we see today. So that means it is still several years, if not more, from shipping in real products. Michael Abrash, the chief scientist, specifically said he doesn't know of a laser source that can work for this, right? Yeah, well, he doesn't know of a laser source that would work at consumer cost and size and performance, all three at the same time. So you can't put this in a product yet for that simple reason. But they did, did build a fully integrated prototype, which they call Hollow Cake 2. And they claim that this is a fully functional PC VR headset. I assume they mean tethered by that, although I guess this could be a wireless transmitter at the back. They didn't really say. But you can see here, you know, there's images of Mark Zuckerberg using the headset. And from this one, you can kind of get an idea of the form factor. And that's with a uh, gasket put here to block out any outside light. You see in the images from before that it's actually much smaller when you take that away. And so that's important because that tells you what the actual weight and feeling of the front would be. Because obviously that little kind of facial interface gasket is just a piece of foam. It's not where the actual weight's coming from. It's the thing absorbing the weight. And so as you say, they describe this as the thinnest and lightest headset they have ever built. And it's again, it's another one of those prototypes that shows just one of these aspects of their research. I think uh, Norm uh, tested this one. And uh, there's this video, I, th I could be misremembering what I saw in his video, but he's doing this in front of his headset, uh, running his hand in front of it in the space where I'm, I'm doing it in front of the headset. But he is running his hand in the space where the, the the big giant box of the Quest 2 would be. And he was describing how it felt weird to not have that bulk weighing down. And I think Zuckerberg at one point in his discussion with Norm talked about how when you've got the weight uh, distributed that way, it actually feels a little bit more um, off-putting because of the way it like shifts on your head back and forth like the because it's so heavy on here it's almost pulling down on you and forward all the time and to have that be gone on this design is another dramatic sort of like lifting of you know it's freeing your brain from this idea that you're wearing this piece of hardware uh to show you something that that isn't really there yeah, he said he was pleasantly surprised by just how light it felt. And that was one of the same impressions I had when I tried the Vive Flow, which is obviously a much more limited product, but it uses regular pancake lenses to achieve a much slimmer form factor than HTC's previous headsets. And it really is one of those key aspects for VR becoming a mainstream product that people want to use. There are plenty of people that just do not want a half a kilogram box on their face that we're wearing right now. And I've always been surprised by, for example, how fitness is already becoming popular in VR with this 500 gram box. I think a lot of people who are current enthusiasts underestimate just how much better it will feel and just how much longer they will want to spend in VR when they get the headset that significantly reduces the weight and bulk. 
And a lot of people today that say, oh, I wouldn't ever want to put one of these headsets on my head for four hours and work. That's terrible. Are really not realizing that their problem isn't the, the concept of putting something on their head because they probably do wear headphones for eight and 10 hours at a time. It's the concept of putting something that heavy on the front of your head. So, you know, I've, I've been critical of Meta publicly that they are prioritizing form factor over field of view. I, I still think field of view needs to be worked on just as importantly, but it does really, really matter to make these headsets thinner and lighter. And it's arguably the most important thing to widen the adoption from a hardware perspective. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to think about what you just said there about those priorities because yeah, I get that Meta picks certain priorities that kind of aren't what other people want out of their headsets. I I thought their language around a lot of these features was really interesting. And I think we got to get to the last one to get into Verifocal because uh, we've got a long history or Meta has a long history of talking about those half dome prototypes. So uh, maybe we should go to half dome before we go to Mirror Lake. Yeah. yeah, I think so because you know Merrick is arguably to to some people half dome four in a sense, or at the very least it takes on the same ideas as half dome and brings it into a much more compact form factor. So we'll obviously talk about what half dome is first. So all current headsets, even the enterprise ones that cost five thousand dollars and above, even the ones that cost ten thousand dollars, use fixed focus lenses. Each of your eyes gets a separate image, so you get binocular. 3D, but those images are focused at a fixed distance. Your eyes will point, converge, or diverge towards a virtual object you're looking at, but they can't properly focus to this distance because the image is focused at that fixed distance, which in most headsets is something like two meters. This is called the vergence accommodation conflict, and you may have heard that term before if you look into kind of future VR tech, even future AR tech. And it actually causes eye strain over time. It is one of the reasons that some people really complain about feeling eye strain in headsets. It's not this idea that the image is too close. It's not this idea that, you know, it's too bright or anything like that. It's the fact that you are not able to naturally focus on objects. So back in 2018, Meta showed off a prototype called Half Dome, and it works by moving the, the displays mechanically back and forth to adjust their distance from the lenses and in such they can adjust the focal length and so that means you get variable focus or as these headsets are described as very focal now it's impractical to actually have a moving mechanical part like that that moves so many times a second in an actual product half dome one meta researchers have admitted openly would probably break in a consumer setting if someone dropped it or something like that. It's not something you could ever conceivably ship in a reliable product that you didn't want to have a nightmare of a time dealing with customer support for. But they did make it more reliable and compact in a second prototype called Half Dome 2, which was shown off in late 2019. But just minutes after they showed off Half Dome 2, they showed off another headset Half Dome 3. And Half Dome 3 achieves varifocal, although technically it's actually multifocal, by instead of using a mechanical system to move the distance between the displays, it uses a stack of liquid crystal lens layers. And when you apply a voltage to each of these lens layers, it changes its focal length. So 
Each unique combination of on and off along among these six layers will result in a different focus distance. So with six layers, there are 64 different focus distances. And that's why I call it multifocal as it technically is, because varifocal would be able to smoothly change across, you know, infinite. It's like analog versus digital. Now, it's arguable that at 64 focus distances, you're essentially getting varifocal because the human eye is not going to be able to really discern between that many. But I guess that is a distinction that you would want to make for technical purposes. So Half Dome 3 achieves this kind of smaller form factor, but it no longer has moving parts. So it could technically be shipped as a product, although that's something that obviously is, hasn't happened yet. And from the signs of it, from what Zuckerberg said, will not happen until the second half of this decade. He specifically said of Verifocal that that's when he expects it to ship. I guess that takes us to the final headset that was shown off by Meta, although we can't really say shown off because this is a concept that they are currently working on and they have admitted they have not yet built this into a functional prototype. It is called Mirror Lake. Mirror Lake is designed to be a concept, a prototype that will bring together a lot of the different elements of research that Meta's display research team have been doing over the past seven years into a single headset, including this idea of using a lens layer stack to achieve varifocal slash multifocal, but in a much more compact form factor, as you can see here. And we talked about those hollow kick lenses before. That is what Mirror Lake uses. It takes the hollow kick lenses that we saw in that hollow kick 2 prototype and brings them into a system that also has varifocal, and also has reverse pass-through, which is something we saw before. And if you're not familiar with what reverse pass-through means, it means that there is a display on the front of the headset that passes through the view of the top of your face and your eyes. And that means that people in the room with you can actually see your eyes and your face while they're with you. Personally, I don't think this is as important of a feature as some people are making out, but I guess if you're very concerned about not being able to see others in the room. If you really think that's going to be a barrier to adoption, that's something that this company is want to take, going to want to take on. And it's interesting to note that in the information's report last month about Apple's rumored upcoming headset, they claim that Apple's headset will have this feature in a shipping product next year. So you see where these different companies are prioritizing this, whereas Meta is talking about something that may happen in the next half of the decade, the second half of the decade. Apple is reportedly trying to ship this as early as next year. I think it's interesting to note that in 2019, Michael Abrash, their chief scientist in their Reality Labs division, also talked about making a next generation headset concept prototype. And we never heard anything about that again. What gets me about the, these technologies all being shown in this concept is I, I can't tell which of these is the first one we're going to get, right? We know Sony has an HDR display. It would makes sense given what we've heard from these hands-on reports that HDR is likely a, you know, is a very near-term win for being able to introduce that into a headset. But Verifocal, it's, it's bothering me a little bit that in their research, Meta did find out that users preferred Verifocal to fixed focus, right, Heaney? Um and and that's still so many years away? Yeah, they're still saying that it's the second half of the decade is when we're supposed to expect this. 
Again, I think it's so notable that they didn't talk about any of the more short-term things we might see. It's clear that we're still in this refractive lens era and we still have to now enter the pancake lens era. That's what we're going to see with Cambria. It may be what we see with Quest 3, although I've said publicly I'm skeptical that Quest 3 will actually get that. It may be until Quest 4 that the low-cost line starts to get this. It's years out until we get here. Meta is trying to chart how it gets to this visual Turing test, how it gets to these headsets that make the metaverse a product that hundreds of millions and billions of people want to use. And that's what those display system people are working on. It's important to note that when Zuckerberg was doing this roundtable, he talked about the product teams and the research teams as being different. And he talked about, as he's talked about before, the product teams are working on the next generation headset and the one after that. They're working on Quest 3 and they're working on Quest 4. They're working on Cambria and they're working on Cambria 2. They're working on whatever succeeds Cambria. To see some of the technologies that are being talked about today and in research, we're going to see that in Quest 5 or Quest 6 or Quest 7 or Cambria 3 and Cambria 4. It's not something that we're expecting to see in the products that are coming over the next few years. It's just the Meta has this company philosophy of trying to get their technology out to everyone. They are there with Quest 2 at the very bottom of the scale of, of pricing, right? There is no one that has been able to approach $300 in price. Even when the Quest 1 was at $400, no one was coming close to it, and they just went and made it harder to achieve any competition by taking it to 300 by making some really shrewd choices about what hardware to kind of ship, right? They, they didn't ship the OLED in the second generation, right, Heaney? Uh, I think that was one of the big things that they had to move on from, uh, as well as they did have separate panels in the first generation. Is that right? Yeah, and they had precise lens separation adjustment because of it. So they, they, they were cost-cutting in going g- generation one to two to get to achieve a lower price at the end of the day. And to your point about these pancake lenses being something they're introducing in Cambria, it just, it what what really kind of, it's like if I go get Cambria, I'm getting a better set of eyes than if I had a Quest 2, right? They're, it's literally like having a better set of eyes. That's how different the visual experience is going from one headset to the other. And that just seems out of place a little bit in my mind from Meta's philosophy of trying to get its technology out to everyone. Like, they're actually going to have two tiers of eyes that you can buy from Meta, uh, essentially. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's how technology has always been. There's always been the low-cost options, and then the expensive products introduce the newest technology first. And over time, when that new technology is produced at a larger volume, when it goes into from being in a kind of niche product to a mass market product, the price comes down. Which upgrades do the people who can't afford the best eyes get first? You know, people who want the best eyes, uh, you know, if they're going to go get Quest 3, are they really just going to repeat what they've done with Quest 2 and strip out a little bit of things, try to get to like a $200 price? That was that was the source of my question over there to Zuckerberg and uh, Landman and Abrash to understand eye tracking, right? Eye tracking is absolutely fundamental to so many of these great visual experiences. To pass the Turing test, it seems like you're going to have to have eye tracking. But Zuckerberg made it clear that he wasn't going to make comments on what my, a Quest 3 might have. And... 
if it doesn't have eye tracking, it might not improve things dramatically visually. Um, I, I just, which of these features are we going to get first? It's, 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 this is the question we're going to be thinking about for the next year and a half uh, until the next Quest hits. What features from Cambria are going to come down to Quest on that sort of time scale? And how long is it going to be until we have a $300 or $200 VR headset that passes the visual Turing test? Because, like, I don't, you know, the, the world doesn't change necessarily when it's a $2,500 or a $3,000 VR headset that passes the visual Turing test. It changes when it's a, a $300 or $200 device, right? I think what we're going to see is that with each generation of the low-cost Quest line, it will add one or two features that were in the high-cost Cambria line, whatever it end up, ends up being called. And the advantage of putting it into that higher-end line first is that developers get time to build with those features, that Meta gets time to build up the supply chain, as I said, to bring down the cost of those features. And they even get to see what do users actually care about when using these features in the real world and how do we need to prioritize improving them in the future it's impossible to tell what quest 3 will have but as i've speculated before i think we're not going to see quest 3 be a cambria that appears a year later at a quarter of the price and has all the features that's just not going to happen so if you look what are the real cost drivers in cambria i think it could be the pancake lenses that aren't going to be delivered i think it could be the mini led displays I think those controllers that charge on a dock and are self-tracked, I don't know if they're going to be delivered in a low-cost headset in the near term. But I do think eye tracking and face tracking is going to be included. And I think that because Zuckerberg has pretty much said it in the past that he was asked by Lex Fridman what he prioritizes in these headsets. And he said it was eye tracking and face tracking because they, you know, Meta is the social connection company and they want to be able to deliver eye contact and facial expression for the metaverse. So maybe Zuckerberg doesn't prioritize making those low-cost headsets compact first, but he does prioritize bringing them the social features that will actually improve things like workrooms and Horizon. Mm. You just described a lot of additional sensors that are going to be packed into a device to bring any of those things. And every single additional sensor that they put into that low-cost device is going to take them out of the price range that they want to be in. So I'd say with Cambria, if they're using the CMXR2 processor that's in Quest 2, which it seems they may, even though they may maybe have more RAM in it based on some reports, they're going to have to put in a custom chip to handle a lot of these sensors. But if Qualcomm's next XR2, the, the Gen 2, as they're not, you know, they're now referring to the current XR2 as Gen 1, which heavily hints that there is going to be a Gen 2, it may be able to support more sensors natively. And if they don't have to build a secondary chip to fuse this sensor data first, that cuts a lot of the cost. What I really wonder is what they're going to do around pass-through because I can see Quest 3 having color pass-through, but I can't see it having a depth sensor like Cambria has. So will it have, will Quest 3 essentially be a slightly worse mixed reality device while being actually perhaps a slightly better VR device if it has a newer processor and perhaps a wider field of view? Could it be a headset that is less suitable for remote work and mixed reality, but more suitable for VR games. You could ship a headset with no controllers involved, and that will remove price from the box. Uh, but then again, uh, there's a lot of games out there that are part of the Quest line that use controller tracking, and they have to figure out 
uh, whether they would, you know, brand it completely something different or whether they would really let uh, you play Beat Saber with hand tracking only, right? Like, could, could they really emulate that uh, on that headset to such a degree that you don't feel terrible waving your hands in midair and not having controllers? Well, you talked about before about will they with Quest 3 try to shave another $100 off and cut even more features? And I don't think so because I do think that when they try to hit $200, it will be, as you say, through a headset that's delivered without the controllers bundled forcibly. And I think that's going to happen when the headset has enough features, the low-cost headset, that it can do these remote work things and these mixed reality things and the social features that don't really necessitate having a controller. Obviously, they'll get there first in the pro line, you know, Cambria, whatever it ends up being called. But when they can bring those features down and they can deliver a pancake lens headset that has really high quality hand tracking and really high quality mixed reality that can give you these kind of multiple monitors in whatever position you want and it's comfortable and practical enough that you would want to use it for remote work, then yeah, they'd no longer need to force you to use these gamer controllers. But you know, as the as the saying, you know, does that mean that you need to be playing Beat Saber with other controllers? No, it just means that they're sold separately. You can, if you want to use them, you can buy them. Does that mean that developers are going to want to develop less for controllers? Probably yes on an ecosystem level. But if a game requires controllers, it's still going to be shipped like that. And there probably still will be a bundle that has the controllers. They're not going to, you know, not sell the $300 version anymore. It's just that there'll also be a, an alternative at $200 for people who don't specifically want those controllers. Well, the hand tracking on Quest 3 or Cambria will be improved primarily by the resolution. Is that what you said? The depth sensor on Cambria will have a, a big impact. You will actually have a hardware level depth understanding of the hands, which should significantly improve the fidelity of hand tracking, just as you see on HoloLens 2 already and on some other products like that. But the full the, color won't have any effect on that too? Well, the, the higher resolution should have an effect in making it better, which will trickle through to Quest 3. But you're still relying on the same concept of using computer vision to discern the depth. And obviously, with even on Quest 2, some of the recent advancements in software are, are incredible. So I think if they can just increase the resolution and use maybe a, a better processor that has a bigger NPU, yes, you're going to be able to get to that point where hand tracking is pretty great. If not in Quest 3, I think it's a sure bet to say that by Quest 4, it'll be good enough for any application. What I was trying to establish is whether Quest 3 could improve its hand tracking quality without a depth sensor. Yes, definitely, by having a better processor and higher resolution cameras. Got it. So if we're trying to paint a picture of the, the next generation Quest, we would expect them to try to push hand tracking as a, as a major thing. Whether they try to unbundle controllers at the same time uh, would be a, a, an entirely separate question that they would have to deal with right yeah i think in a way they're already trying to push hand tracking quite heavily you see a lot of developer blog posts about talking about how to replace controllers with hands you see that hand tracking update you see all of the mixed reality content is using hand tracking you see the interaction sdk is designed so that anything that can be done with controllers can also be done with hand tracking uh hand tracking supported in horizon workrooms I wonder how long it'll be until it's supported in Horizon proper, Horizon Worlds. I think that's the point that Meta starts to really push hand tracking is when you can go into Horizon Worlds and do all of the same things you can do with controllers with just your hands or at the very minimum that you can just view and not create with your hands. You know, it's really interesting to think of some of the benefits that Meta has kind of pulled out ahead of some of the competition in certain respects. There are things like the single battery controller 
with a battery life that ha- that lasts literally months for some users, right? There are some people who are changing out their batteries six months later after getting a Quest 2 because the battery life is that improved. And they, I think they specifically said machine learning was part of the contributions to that, that feature getting there, right? And then we're seeing uh, leaps and bounds of the hand tracking getting better because of the same reason, right, Heaney? Do do we think that their foveated rendering is uh, an advantage that can be, you know, is it, something that they can bring machine learning to bear on, and is, is could be, you know, the next competitive advantage that they really outshine the competition with? There definitely is a potential for that because both sides of this equation machine learning is directly relevant. Obviously, you have the actual eye tracking itself, which is a computer vision task. It's real-time computer vision to track the pupil and its movement using these infrared cameras. And then on the other side, you have the reconstruction where, yes, from an ideal perspective with foveated rendering, you just render what you're looking at in high resolution and render the rest in low resolution. But it turns out your eye can kind of notice that if you're not doing it with a very kind of precise eye tracking if there's any issues at all or if your foveal area isn't large enough. So one of the techniques Meta has talked about in the past is upscaling the peripheral area with a neural network so that you only need to render a tiny number of pixels in that area and the rest of it can be filled in in a way that looks natural to the eye. There's also the potential that even the the foveal area can be upscaled. This idea of neural rendering that we've seen well, neural upsampling that we've seen in products like NVIDIA's DLSS, in, uh, in AMD's FSR, in the new metal upscaling system that Apple presented at WWDC. It's going to be a huge part of the future of games, of the future of computer graphics, and definitely for virtual reality. We've already seen some of these use cases being possible on PC VR, and Meta has shown off plenty of research of bringing it to standalone. So yes, if they can leverage computer vision on one end and neural reconstruction on the other, they could have a competitive advantage over some of the companies that are working on foveated rendering through more traditional techniques. So there could be something, basically a trick up the sleeve for Cambria that could uh, eventually play out as being a big differentiator. All right, well, thank you so much, Heaney, and thank you so much for our audience for tuning in this week. This has been a very big, busy week for news as we've been trying to digest what all these headset designs bring to market. Anyways, thank you. We'll be back next Tuesday. Come back. Uh, I think we will have a... I I don't think there's going to be a game cast this week because Jamie's off, but we'll be back to our full selves next week. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in the future. Thanks, everyone, again. See you next week.